Well, good morning and welcome to worship at Asbury. I'm the lead pastor here, Forrest Divinity. Behind me is our Christmas choir, and you guys are in for a real treat this morning. They are wonderful. I have just a few announcements for you before we get things started. I want to remind you of the schedule of things coming up. On Christmas Eve, we have three worship services. We have 5 p.m., 7 p.m., and then for all the really cool kids, the 11 p.m. service. So... Uh, then on Christmas Day, we are not having any worship service at all because that 11 p.m. service ends right at midnight, so you've already been to church on Christmas Day. So no service on Christmas Day, which is a week from today. But the following Sunday is New Year's Day. We are having one service on New Year's Day at 11 a.m. with a brunch at 10.30 a.m. All of that will be right here in the worship center. I want to remind you as well that we are coming up on the end of our Bible reading plan. You've been reading through the entire Bible in a year. Um, since I love you and I'm merciful, next year we'll go easy. Uh, instead of trying to do the entire Bible, we'll do more focused reading plans. We're going to start on January 1st with 90 days through the Gospels. So that will take us actually right up to Holy Week. So it'll be a, a wonderful. So that, that reading plan will have things up on the website. We'll have things printed out. But it's also available already in the YouVersion Bible app. So if you like to use that to read your Bible, it's already built into that app for you. Uh, finally, uh, we have our second listening session as part of the discernment process. Our second of three is on January the 8th at 2 p.m. So it is a Sunday afternoon, just like the last one. You'll have time to go out, grab something to eat, and come back. Uh, and we will make sure that, that that is well attended. So January the 8th at 2 p.m. And with all that said, why don't you stand up and greet the folks around you?
folks, as you find your way back to your seats, I forgot one announcement, so I'm going to let Letty make that announcement before I pray. And it's a very important announcement as well. So um, my name is Leticia Ornelas. I, along with my husband, Javier, are your lay leaders here at Asbury. And I just like to come up and just as a friendly reminder, we have such amazing staff here at Asbury. We have 11 staff all together. Um, if you look around, you see, you know, the church runs on a daily basis. It's not just on a Sunday, but it's every day there's things going on. So from our office staff, from our custodial staff, all the way up to our ministry leaders and to our pastoral staff. Um, if you feel in your heart that you would like to bless these people with an extra donation um, for Christmas season, please do so. T uh, tomorrow is the last day to do so, um, but you can just designate on your check or on the envelope. You can leave those in the back as you leave today, um, but this is a special um, Christmas bonus for our staff. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning to come together to, to praise your name, to worship as the body of Christ. And we ask that as we come into this time of worship, you would give us hearts and minds, eyes and ears only for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. time to bind up the brokenhearted. Come, Lord, and make all things new. For past wrongs that prevent us from moving forward, come, Lord, and make all things new. For any bitterness that scratches our souls, come, Lord, and make all things new. For relationships left in decay and neglect, come, Lord, and make all things new. For any action that has wounded us or by which we have wounded others, grant that we might have the peace of Christ as we wait, the love of Christ as we act, and the grace of Christ as we speak. This morning we light four candles. The first candle is the light of hope for those in times of waiting.
The second candle is the light of hope for those who are wearied by the circumstances of life. The third candle is the light of hope for those eagerly watching for God's promised glory. The fourth candle is the light of hope for those who carry the wounds of life. Today we acknowledge our pain and the pain we have caused others. As the light shines, we turn to the Savior who came to rescue the lost, to help the hurting, and to bind up the broken. we pray. Merciful God, Advent reminder us that uh, you have left heavens majestic to walk among wounded people in a broken world. We thank you that your love knows no bound, a rise of limitations. No wounds of this earth is greater than the wounds you've came to heal. For all who suffers this day, like the way, O oh Lord, towards the promise of healing and wholeness, uh, made known in you. Amen. These poor people have spent most of the morning staring at my back already. I should have put like a Where's Waldo back here so they could be in a day. All the speakers are pointing this way so they have trouble hearing me. Um, lucky them. Let's pray. Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Truth be told, y'all, the music is so good, I shouldn't even be preaching. Um, but I am making you all read through the book of Revelations. I figure I owe it to you to at least talk about it a little bit. So we're going to read from two different spots in the book. We're going to read from chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and then chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. So from chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
and then chapter 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And isn't that just so Christmassy? Lovely. As I've said over and over again, you know, that this book is it's just so highly symbolic and there's so much metaphor and imagery going on uh, that, that it's, it's hard really to read it and interpret it. It's hard to kind of take what you read in there and square it with the rest of the Bible, with the rest of what we know and believe about God. It's a difficult book. But it is so important to understand what it's saying and what it's teaching. It's actually a core part of, of Christian belief. And so we have to dive into it and we have to actually unpack the symbols. And so at the core of these two passages is this struggle between God and the beast. And, and there's this ongoing battle for universal worship and allegiance. And that is ultimately what every rival power to God is, is seeking, to, to bring the nations into worshiping them and them alone rather than God. And so those who bind themselves to the Lamb will reign with him forever, and those who bind themselves to the beast will share in his punishment. And the trick is that right now, following the beast appears to be the easier, more rewarding path. The, the rewards are immediate, and the suffering is delayed. And by contrast, following and worshiping the Lamb seems a lot more risky, a lot more painful, a lot more dangerous. The rewards are delayed, and for many people, the suffering is immediate. And the more you resist the worship of the beast, the more intense the suffering becomes. John's first readers, in particular, faced a, a tremendous amount of pressure to, to compromise, to conform. And you know, we're not surprised by the fact that they got external pressure, people from the surrounding culture who, who insisted that they bow down to their idols, worship their emperor, and, and do things of that nature. And it's not just religious pressure because, of course, one of the dominant religions of the day is the worship of the Roman emperor. There's political issues at stake. And in their eyes, it's even the security of the empire at stake. So that doesn't surprise people too much. But what is shocking is that John here in Revelation and Paul in other letters will reference leaders within the church who are doing the same thing, pressuring people to conform, to compromise, to give up the morals and the values that they hold so dear and to become more like the people around them. Half the New Testament is Paul telling people, don't do that. But the risen Christ exposes those teachings not just as false, but, but as deadly even. This is a significant percentage of what goes on in Revelation is revealing those teachings to be false and deadly. And so the beast that gets described is like this cheap parody or mockery of Christ. He, he tries to copy everything that Christ does, and while the lamb conquers by pouring out his life so that others might live, the beast conquers by exacting bloodshed and violence on the Lamb's followers. 
And just as God's followers are described as having a sign and seal on their forehead to mark their belonging to God, the beast's followers are marked with a number that signifies that they belong to him. And people have made a lot out of the, the whole idea of the, the number of the beast, right? Including a very good heavy metal song. Um, listen, it's good. So, right, so the number is 666, right? And, and you know, there's all kinds of bizarre mythology that's been written up about it. But you don't have to speculate on what it means. It's not the COVID vaccine. Uh, <laughs> it's actually very, very clear what that number is supposed to be about. There's, there's two meanings to it. The first is simply that it, it represents imperfection. All throughout Revelation, John is using the number seven as a number that represents perfection, right? It's based on the seven days of creation. It's, it's completeness and wholeness and purity and goodness. And so 666 falls just short. And so it symbolizes the, the imperfection, the close but not quite of all of these powers that try to do what Jesus can do. And very specifically, it points to the Emperor Nero. If you take the name Nero Caesar, his full official title, and, and write it in Hebrew letters, the, the numerical value of each letter, it tallies up to 666. And I know that makes me sound like an internet crackpot uh, who spent too much time <laughs> at the computer, right? It sounds like a weird conspiracy theory, but the fact is this actually is something that they did in the ancient world for fun. They didn't have the internet. <laughs> this is what happens. It was common practice to assign numerical values to, to letters in the alphabet and then to refer to people by the number that corresponded to their name. You even find it, by the way, in like Roman graffiti in ancient cities on, on ruins. You'll see people referencing people by the number of their name. So this is a real thing. And, and Nero fits all the references to Christ that you find in chapter 13. He's infamously cruel to Christians. He lines the streets leading into Rome with burning bodies, right? He... he and even like the, the beast in the story that dies, it comes back to life. There's a popular legend that Nero will come back after his death to reclaim his empire. But we should never stop at thinking that the beast only represents a historical figure. That it's only Nero and Rome. It certainly is those things. But the beast is present wherever and whenever human institutions and human individuals oppose the rule of the Lamb and demand the worship that God alone deserves. And so just like John's first readers, we're called to recognize and resist the deceptions of the beast. And you'll notice that there's worshipers from every people and, and tribe and language and nation who are worshiping the Lamb, and there are people from every tribe and language and nation who are worshiping the beast. It's the same group of people. It means that we can't fall into these traps of thinking that, like, okay, we, we've got it covered, we're okay here, and all those people over there are, are the bad ones. Everyone falls into the same traps. And likewise, everyone can be redeemed. And the moral of the story is that our, our true allegiance is never to who we think it is. We're either worshiping the lamb or we're worshiping the beast disguised as something innocuous. The beast in Revelation is, is Nero and the Roman Empire, which provided a whole lot of benefits to the people who bow down to it. We have to ask then, what is it for us? What in the modern world is demanding our worship 
our allegiance. There's probably far too many examples to, to pick, but you can in general just insert the whole of Western culture since the Enlightenment into that box. And you can begin to see the ways in which people are deceived and led astray. One of the most defining features that came out of the Enlightenment is the idea uh, that, that God is distant and largely unconcerned with human affairs. And from that mindset, you get the idea that we hold really dear of separation of church and state. Not, not the idea that the, church should not the, the government should not pass laws regarding the practice of religion, that's fine, but the idea that actually God has no place in government that God is not concerned with the everyday affairs of humanity and that we can get by without him. But you see, that, that doesn't work. That whole mindset is utterly alien to a biblical worldview. No government has the authority or the ability to cast God off in that way because God is sovereign and any authority held by any government is held only at his sufferings. Separation of God and the state is a myth. It's, it's ultimately just not realistic, but it's a cherished ideal. And you see how this becomes so intertwined with our most deeply held cultural values that even challenging it in public is very difficult. Because we're not saying, yes, the government should mandate that everyone become a Christian today. It's not the point. It's a recognition that God is actually involved. That like it or not, all governments are ultimately accountable to God and should undertake actions accordingly. And see, the tricky thing is it's not like the Enlightenment is all bad. It's not like these ideas are all bad. It's a good thing, in fact, that the government does not pass laws requiring people to be part of certain religions. We like that. I think God likes that. I think God would far prefer people to freely choose to become a Christian rather than to be compelled by the government they, they live in. Likewise, our world is full of countless medical and scientific advances that all can be traced back to the Enlightenment. They've made our lives measurably safer and more comfortable. So you see, the tricky bit is there's, there's a lot of good, but it's packaged with evil. It's hard to overstate how, how damaging the idea is that God is distant and doesn't care about our everyday lives. Think of how deeply that has infected each and every one of us to some degree. The idea that we can go about our daily business and God's not really bothered with it and we don't really need to worry about what God is saying to us or how God is guiding us because he's up there. How many times have you thought, I'm not going to pray about this because God is too big to care about what's going on in my daily life? All of it can be traced back to that idea. And see, this is what the beast does. It offers you something that seems wonderful. It appeals to all the freedom you think you could possibly want. And there are real, clear, and obvious benefits that come along with it. And it's only after the fact that you begin to see the evil working its way out. And so there will be people from every tribe and tongue, every nation, every ethnicity who will worship the Lamb in the end. And there will be people from every tribe and tongue who in the end will choose the beast over the Lamb. Because we like what the beast has to offer. He seems to be giving us everything we want, all the freedoms we want, all the pleasures we want. Life with the beast looks free and easy. 
and it certainly seems better at a glance than following the lamb who happens to demand quite a bit from his followers. But following the beast always comes with a cost. For every good thing he gives his followers, he demands payment in blood. The good is packaged with evil. Pleasure comes with pain. But when you follow the lamb, you find that he has already paid the price. He demands no payment, only allegiance. And while there may be temporary suffering, even death cannot hold you when you are following him. And so what the Lamb offers is true and good. It's pure and it's holy. It's the more difficult path, but it's the only one with real rewards. Because nothing that he gives you is bad. If all the good offered by the beast is packaged with evil, what the Lamb offers is just pure good. And the beast craves power and will do anything, go to any length to get it. And he will go to any length to keep it. But the lamb deserves power, and yet he gives it up. He deserves glory and honor, but he humbles himself. And so great is his love for us that he gave up everything to become one of us. And see, this is the, the majesty and the mystery that we celebrate on Christmas. Even if the crucifixion and resurrection hadn't happened, the birth of Christ alone would be pretty convincing proof that we ought to follow him and not anyone else. And we all will have to choose who to follow. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. The beast knows how to make himself tempting, and he specifically knows how to package himself in, as something that looks good and safe. But only the lamb was born for you. Only the lamb died for you. And that's precisely why one day people from every tribe and nation and language will worship him. And our job isn't actually just to choose him. It's, it's to choose him and then to help the world see through the lies of the beast and recognize it for what it is. A cheap parody of the real thing. And nowhere, at no time of year, is it more clear than right now. Because think of the values that the world, even the non-religious world, assigns to Christmas, right? It's always the same things that we say. It's peace, hope, love, and joy. Even people who celebrate Christmas as a purely secular holiday will celebrate those ideals on this day. But what are they founded on? Just human generosity? We get one day a year, we're all going to behave ourselves? We know better, and we can offer better. Peace, hope, joy, and love are not based on us. They're not based on our actions. And there is no culture, no nation, no government that can claim those things either. They are based solely on the knowledge that our God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord of all creation, has such deep love for us, for each and every one of us, that he came down to earth not in glory and might, but as a helpless infant. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you stand with me as we recite the Apostles' Creed together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We're grateful that we can put our hope in something far more permanent, far more solid, far more reliable than anything of human origin. As we come into this final week of Advent, God, we ask that you would turn our hearts toward you. Remind us of your goodness, of your permanence, and of your deep, unending love for us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this time, as we bring our gifts and our offering, we think about what we were hearing in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we celebrate this time of year. And we give to the ministries here at Asbury, we give them to our community and around the world. But this morning I want to focus and you to focus on one of is our ministry of music. This morning you will be hearing it in song and with entering this praising our Savior and give generously as we continue this beautiful uh, ministry that we have in his name. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for those that are have brought the message already and continue in song and instruments, Lord, to raise your name, to raise your name to glory in the highest. As we give, may you bless the giver and the gifts. As we give from our heart out of thankfulness, out of love for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
This is going to sound strange, but could we begin with a moment of silence? A deep breath, a pause, a brief bit of preparation with the earnest hope that these sounds we're about to hear, the familiar images we're about to revisit, the feelings that will move through our senses, might come upon us as new. Because once, they were new. And maybe this brief moment when all flesh keeps silence could prepare us better for what is to come. Perhaps even a new and renewed you. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for the blessing in his hand. Christ our God to earth Our full homage born to since October when reindeer pulling a sleigh chased the witch off the face of Halloween. <laughs> but for all our lives, we've known the details of this nativity story, read about it, sung about it. We've seen pictures. But we can't just show up, can we? I think we have to be invited, don't we? But if you listen closely, that invitation is coming. It sounds a bit like distant rain beginning to fall and slowly move this way. But as it reaches nearer to us, we realize... It's not rain at all. It's joy. 
giddy, dancing, excited, out of your shoes, uncontainable joy. And it's coming from angels, not ominous, commanding, firm, and pointing, simply information-sharing, message-bearing angels, but angels so overjoyed and exuberant with getting to deliver this great news to the world that their excitement cannot be quieted. This, this is what the heavenly hosts and hostesses have been waiting for. This moment. And we think you'll like these angels and the message they bring. One word of warning, though. It's joyful and it's contagious. Try to contain yourselves. But if you can't, it's okay. We get it. Come on, let's go.
no wonder the shepherds ran to Bethlehem. When the sky lights up with the angel's song, that's what we're supposed to do. We know where they're going, and we even know all the songs that accompany them and the scenes they paint for us. And whether it's a little town of Bethlehem or away in a manger or any among the other favorites, we also know there was no polished silver, no bassinet, not a soft, comfy pillowed or blanketed bed in sight. This was sparse, minimalist decor with a nod to the outdoors and, you know, agriculture. Somehow, out of that stark scene, light still comes. And even though we know it well, we may never get used to a king being born here.
One of the things we notice at the gathering around this birth is that nobody's checking the guest list at the door, checking IDs. It's a reminder to us, really, that there was no litmus test. Actually, the shepherd should have been our first clue about that. But the truth is, to come see this child, measuring up is not nearly as important as being curious enough to simply show up and perhaps even be changed. It's the be born in us today part of the nativity carol that pulls us here. Faith can do that even if it comes later. We are all still welcome here, even if we sense we still have more to learn.
stable, it's anything but stable. We may not say it out loud when we come to this place every year, but we think it to ourselves. We stand at the open front of this unadorned auction stall in all its animal earthiness and attempt to hold together in this one image the coming to earth of the Son of God and Son of Man at this absolutely unpalatial place. Who would have chosen this, we ask ourselves. But what if this rundown stable, a weathered and worn manger tucked into a cave-like opening on the side of a rocky Bethlehem hill, is a metaphor for us? This imperfect and unreal estate is God coming to us exactly where we are, less than stable, a bit worn, and desperately in need of renovation, to experience new life and maybe even be astonished. We think of that stable. We look in the mirror, touch our own chest to feel our heartbeat. And maybe we ask, can Christ be born here?
because we're so familiar with this scene of nativity, we may not consider some of the sweeter, quieter, lullaby-like melodies of the season as being anything other than an offering of heavenly, peaceful slumber for this little holy family after the long ordeal of the tiring journey. A young woman, near childbirth, a back a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So many human elements, challenges to maneuver through, which we can too easily gloss over. Truth is, humble and meager as this scene is, we find hope in it, somehow. Amid what had to have been weariness and wonder, and worry, being simply worn out, and all the tension, the yearning that comes with that, comes also the resolution that in this unlikely corner of the world, and in an even less likely corner of this little city, they made it. Christ the Savior is born. And it's a beautiful thing.
by this point in the story, we get it. The light has come on for us, and we understand the joy the angels, majestic and tickled with overflowing excitement like children on Christmas morning, sang about as they danced in flight across the sky over the shepherds and their fields of sheep. And we are aware enough of it that we can even sing along, and we should. The Lord has come. It's Christmas. So joy would be an appropriate response here. Oh. 
I am so glad I didn't have to preach after that. <laughs> My friends, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and every day. Amen.